Good morning, everyone. Today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're being reminded of what God did to save lost sinners and the centrality of the gospel and the person and work of Christ. Today, I'm preaching on one verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And as we will see, there's three questions, and these will point us to the reason that we need grace alone and that boasting is excluded. So I have the second slide here has the text. Let me read that. For who concedes you superiority? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if indeed you received it, received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, if you hadn't heard the sermon last week or the text we're covering, you might wonder why these things are coming up. But what we realize is that the Corinthians were going beyond what was written, that they were boasting in things they shouldn't boast on, making judgments they shouldn't be making, and that only God can make the kind of things that they were claiming. And in the bigger context, which will come up the next time I preach in Corinthians, which will be in a few weeks, they are literally judging Paul to be a pretty pathetic apostle. So that's where this will go. So look at, as we're looking at this, I have some highlights here. Three questions, and that's literally from the Greek, three interrogatives. Who, what, why? Who, what, why? So that is a nice outline. And the first one, the superiority, the boasting, and then also receive. The word is found in the Greek here, lambano, receive, three different times. This will help those learning to study the Scripture. When you have repeated themes and terms in a text, pay attention. Because obviously that's what's being emphasized. So by God's grace, we will look at that and understand what he's saying and listen carefully. So to the next slide, 1 Corinthians 4, 7a. I'm using the Lexham English Bible. Each week I look at the Greek and look for the themes and see which translation will help best bring this out so we understand it in our native tongue. For most of us, that's English. Who concedes you superiority? Now, concedes uh, superiority is literally translating just one word, diacrino. And this word depending on the context, means distinguish, judge, or make distinctions. So in the case of the problems in this particular church in Corinth, they were indeed making distinctions, and those that they made caused their favorite preachers to come out on top, and the ones that they weren't too happy with, as we'll see, Paul, and his uh, associates, to be despised. Now, in the context, Paul mentioned, and I preached on this last week, and warned about being puffed up, and the word literally means to inflate or inflated, being puffed up by going beyond Scripture and making distinctions, superiority, who's better, who's the greatest, who's higher, Who's the most desirable to listen to and follow? And this whole process of making distinctions that we're not capable of making now because we saw earlier God comes, Christ will come and determine who served in what way and what the rewards are or lack thereof. So what we have is what is written. So that's the point. I mentioned last week I'd talk about 
the issue of who's the greatest. I'm going to wait until we cover the next section where Paul uses irony, and I'll bring up some instances, in, particularly in Luke, where when God does some great thing, the disciples start debating who's the greatest. And we'll see the absurdity of that. Today we'll stick with this one verse. So, taking that word diacrino, it means to judge through or to make a distinction, and these things are not our prerogative. What we want to learn is that it's by God's grace and his grace alone that any of us came to our senses, realized that we were God's enemies, and that God in his mercy has sent Christ who died for sins, that we could be part of the family of God. So in the context, being puffed up, that's not good. Going beyond what is written, not good. Making false judgments, not good. Humbling ourselves and realizing no one gave me superiority. And that's what he's reminding them of. The same verb that we're talking about, diacrino, comes up later in the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 29, 31. And since we're celebrating the Lord's Supper today, uh, I'll deal with the words of institution. But if you want to turn now to 1 Corinthians 11, let's look at verses 29 and 31, where this word diacrino, crino is judge, dia is a prefix, means through, and we'll see in the context, it's easy to make false distinctions. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine says this, for anyone who eats and drinks without Discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Discerning, now I'm citing there from the ESV, is the same word that's translated here, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, conceit superiority. Why is this important? A while back I preached on that whole section so we understand the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is about remembering the Lord's death until it comes. Remembering the Last Supper, particularly as uh, understood and narrated in Luke, the blood of the covenant, the thing that makes us part of it, and looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remembering what he did, believing what he said, looking forward to his promises. So the air in Corinth was they were making... Um, false judgments of superiority. Some people had the favorable seat at the table, so to speak. Eric mentioned that this morning, and they sat at the place of honor, and the others were out in the atrium where the undesirable people who had less status would sit. And so that's what it means there. um, We don't want to be that way, and we, if we judge ourselves truly, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, we would not be judged. So what does it mean to discern the body? It doesn't mean, as it's taught in liturgical versions of Christianity, that the table has to be guarded. In other words, the bread and the wine would be literally the body of Christ. No. It's discerning how we're part of the body, how we are even in this uh, uh, place of knowing Christ and serving him by his grace. And the one another's in the Bible mean those who God saved are people who have been put into his body and our status is sons and daughters of the king. Forgiven redeemed, and remembering how we're a part of it at all. And so the false judgments, the superiority comes from, I have something 
better about me because of what I was like before I was saved, because of some things that are part of common grace or whatever we may think, that's false judgment. Verse 31, if we judged, there's our word, diacrino, truly, we would not be judged, which would mean by God as having failed, like Judas at the Last Supper, who was judged. So it means to properly evaluate. Now, what can we evaluate? What God said, what God did, who Christ is, the terms of the gospel, forgiveness of sins, eternal hope, redemption. These things are common that we have in Christ. And so here, the church in Corinth, not only were judging Paul to be inferior, they were judging some in the body of Christ to be even lesser than that. You sit over here. So that was the problem. So I have a statement to make while we're on the slide. Pride causes us to make false distinctions, which sees others as lesser than ourselves. And that is the very nature of fallen humanity. Pride is what caused the fall in the book of Genesis, and it's what would infect us if we don't keep remembering grace alone. Dr. Gordon Fee made this comment. The fall, which means fall into sin from the garden back in Genesis, the fall, he used a capital F, the fall, has given us all too high a view of ourselves with a corresponding low view of others. That's what puffed up does. And that's something that every one of us will have to guard and think about not falling into all of our lives. We long for the Lord to return. Let's go to the next rhetorical question. 1 Corinthians 4, 7b, still from the Lexham English Bible. This is a very piercing question. And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, think about that. I'm not sure how they would respond. We do know it didn't go well because by 2 Corinthians, they were still saying that Paul wasn't spiritual enough for them. They wanted somebody else. And he was the one that brought them the gospel. But in our own case, as this applies to any of us, what there would be a blessing from God as part of our status in the body of Christ, if indeed we're born of him, do we have that we did not receive? But here it's in the singular when Paul writes this. The implied answer, nothing. Nothing. Receive is, I have this on the slide, heiress, which means something here that would be at conversion, at the point of conversion received by God's grace, implies that each one needs to think about that. Often we concern ourselves with um, who we are and what we have to contribute. That happens by God's grace as we believe his promises and grow in his grace. Sometimes we don't know. But it's enough to be part. I remember I was a vocal, blasphemous enemy of the gospel when I was converted. And when I showed up back at work, there was no way to hide the fact I was converted, not that I wanted to. But I was, I was yelling out obscenities the last time those guys saw me at work. And I came back and said nothing because I didn't know what to say. 
And finally, at the end of the shift, they said, well, what happened? And I said, I accepted Christ. That's how I saw it. But in reality, he accepted me. And I didn't deserve it. I, I thought of something. At that time, there was a fellow that I knew from high school. And he started later. We were unloading a truck or something, a semi that came in. And he was making fun of me. We know you're not a Christian. We know what you were like. Oh, you holy rollers. He was going on. I kind of forgot about it. Went back for a high school or a hope of a reunion. We were in a park in Sheldon, Iowa. That same guy, remember his name now, but he came up to me, says, I owe you an apology. This was decades later. I said, Really? He said, yeah, I was the one who mocked you when you became a Christian. And I want to apologize because now I'm a Christian. Wow, I didn't expect that. Because before we're converted, we look at others and we think they're just acting pious or there's something wrong with them. But when you come to Christ, you realize, wow, God is gracious. So having received, should I think that some others are kind of worthless Christians? No, we don't think that way, and I'm not saying that we do here. But we all individually, it's in the singular, ask ourselves a question. Three interrogatives. It's interesting in the Greek, if you look at the dictionary entry, the three interrogatives are tis, tis, tis. Sometimes somebody in English might use that as a uh, put-off. But when you look at it in the context, tis, 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 means who or why, given the, the gender there. Look at what Paul said, if you want to turn to this, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. The beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul defends his status as an apostle, because that was being questioned. One born as out of time, but yet, having seen the resurrected Christ, who appeared to him, been taught by Christ, and appointed as an apostle. But look what he says about that in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So notice he attributes everything to grace and then reminds the Corinthians that didn't mean he just sat around, well, it's grace, I don't do anything. He labored hard. And then at the end, he said, but not I, but the grace. So give God the glory. Whatever God's given you, use it. Serve one another and serve. The Lord will use each one he saved. And in the end, not I, but the grace of God. That's a really good paradigm for how to view the Christian life. But by grace, labor hard. God did the the work. If it wasn't for God, my labors personally would have gone an entirely wicked direction. Now we got to look at the third question. 1 Corinthians 4, 7c. So the first one, who conceded superiority to you? Question two, what do you have that you didn't receive? Obviously nothing. Third question, this was Paul to the Corinthians who, as we will see, really didn't think very highly of him. But if indeed you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So here we have, I laid it out on the slide here, if implied affirmative, as is the case, because they were boasting. 
why boast? Why? You received it. That's the affirmative. God did a gracious work in Corinth. People were converted. We read about it in Acts. God received blasphemers, sinners, unbelievers, and gave mercy to people who didn't deserve it. And then they boast that they're better than somebody else. And Paul's saying, why? Why boast? And this we shall see as we go forward today and as we continue to study this is something that is always a danger. It's not wrong to say pride is a poison pill to the faith because it doesn't imply God is merciful to sinners. It implies I figured something out that some other people could never figure out, so look at me. That's what's wrong with it. False judgments, which lead to boasting, show a lack of understanding of God's grace. That's a statement that that I made after studying this and looking at the context. is undoubtedly the case that Paul's making. False judgments. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Christ. Remember the first chapter? Paul said, no. What? Is Christ divided? There's a lot of things we don't know. And as we will see in a future sermon, I want to go into Luke to show that at some of the greatest moments in the Gospel of Luke, when God did a marvelous work, the result was the disciples started arguing who's the greatest. And Luke puts that there on purpose. The reader is supposed to see that. Why, after the Mount of Transfiguration, would you be thinking who's the greatest? We know who's the greatest, God. The glorified Christ they got a preview of. It's the it's wrong thing to concern ourselves about. So in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, we saw Paul said, do not go on passing judgment before the time before the Lord comes. Until then, there's a lot of things we don't know, but we will. But we do know the gospel. I'll make a statement that I have here in my notes about grace, and then in our applications, we'll look at the gospel itself, the gospel of grace. Grace is not deserved or earned. The fact that Paul has emphasized that the gospel of Christ crucified is offensive to all sinners shows that no one would have welcomed it had God not given saving grace. No one would have. And uh, anything earned by works isn't grace. It's what we do to be religious. Back to my statement. Those who were thus converted have differing, different gifts according to God's will for the benefit of the body of Christ. Claiming superiority over others in the body of Christ based on one's own claim a personal gifting is sinful boasting. We cannot even know these things now, much less make any judgments about who is the greatest. That's why we have to be very wary about grandiose claims that are put on billboards and advertisements. Come here, the great man of power, the glorious prophet of God, the great this and the glory that. No one who understood grace alone would want that sort of advertising because it's presumptuous. 
But the reality is God uses ordinary people having been shown grace to do extraordinary things and often they don't know they did them. Don't even know. I had no idea that that guy Sheldon ever noticed anything, but we don't know what God's going to do. Dr. Gordon Fee says they're boasting is sure evidence that they have missed the gospel of grace. Instead of recognizing everything as a gift and being filled with gratitude, they rather possessed their gifts, saw them as their own, and looked down on the apostle who seemed to lack so much. Remember what happens? Second Corinthians, what do they say about Paul? His personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Well, God can use him. There's hope for me. And we need to realize that in God's omnipotence and mercy and sovereignty, he takes people who have nothing going for them and intervenes powerfully through the gospel and uses people that we would never expect. And God is glorified. Now, the next paragraph, we'll just, we're going to go to applications here. The next paragraph is filled with irony. So if you study ahead for a few weeks from now, when it's my time to preach again, if you look at verses 8 through 13 and took it literally, you'd miss the irony. Uh, so the next paragraph, filled with irony about their puffed-up evaluations of themselves, and Paul and other true apostles are looked as dishonored fools in comparison. The dregs of the earth. Your kings were nothing. That's what comes up. So we'll look at that in a few weeks. If you, you got to understand the irony, or you won't get it. It's ironic. Okay, so you, you're kings, Corinthians. Why don't you let us come and reign with you? They're not getting it. But I'm, sadly, church history is a history of the Corinthian heir being not only replicated, but using more and more technology to make it even worse to make the claims more grandiose, more impressive to the world. And we see that constantly. And in the midst of all the glory of man, there are kings reigning, so to speak. Somewhere in the midst of all this are ordinary people who had no hope who actually believed the gospel. And we won't know the outcome until the parousia. We have to be careful. The pageantry can be very impressive. The architecture can be very, very impressive. The whole thing looks amazing when you see what Christendom can make of itself. And the gospel might show up in there, but does anybody ever hear it? That's the question. Two applications. Particular gifts of God are properly understood in light of the gift of salvation. Number two, boasting is evidence of pride which poisons our spiritual well-being. Anyone who read Genesis or Revelation, how could you come up with any other conclusion? If you look at the, the various historical events from the garden, the fall, and so on, and then people that seem to have nothing being used by God, others who had everything being humbled, 
read the story. It's amazing. God uses whom he will, and it's often the one who's despised by the world. Now, let's look at salvation. I want to preach the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That is the result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Let me explain this. For by grace you've been saved through faith. What does that mean? What does saved mean? Saved means rescued from serious peril. What peril, if we know Christ, we're born of God, what peril did God rescue us from? Think about it. If you misdefine the problem, you misdefine salvation. What was the peril that God rescued Christians from? Well, let me help us put it in context. Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, how can you rescue the dead? Well, since it's written to living persons, he must be speaking of spiritual death. So, how would it be that the spiritually dead, whatever that means, I'll explain it. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Death is not obliteration, but separation. Separation from God. So dead sinners are separated from God, lost, and do not know God, and are enemies of God. To be saved is to be given life, to be made alive. So you were dead, Ephesians 2.1, in your trespasses and sins. Yeah, let me explain what's difficult for a lot of people. In Christendom, people grow up in churches hearing things, whether they ever believe, actually believe it or not. And this sort of by osmosis thinking, well, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know? Well, I go to church. How do you know? We have hymnals. How do you know? We read, uh, thank you, we read stories and we hear these things and we went to Sunday school. How do you know? Well, I'm a Christian. But many times, Christendom, in the bigger sense of the culture, this somewhat Christianized, creates false assurance. People don't believe they're dead. And I'm thankful that I came to realize that when God confronted me through the gospel. When you preach the gospel to Christians, most of them are offended because I, someone called the other day, and I mentioned what I think about that. The one term in the English language that's subject, subjected to more equivocation than any other word is the word Christian. That Christian this and Christian that, and Christian mysticism, Christian immorality, Christian this Christian churches that have long ago denied Christ, Christian teachings and seminaries, they're looking for their neogram number, and Christian mysticism, Christian this and Christian that. But that is equivocation. What does the term mean? It means that a dead sinner, dead in Adam, with nothing going for that person through the gospel 
came alive. By grace, you are saved through faith. Not by raising your hand, signing a card, being a better person, being born in a certain country, going to church, reading the back of the hymnal, going through membership training, having been baptized as a baby, bringing your rosary beads around, whatever it is, that doesn't make anyone a Christian. Being alive means now the dead person, spiritually, is born of God and saved. Saved from eternal judgment. Saved from the wrath of God. Not of yourselves. People don't want Christ crucified. Why? They say they do because it's been um, painted over with slogans, so it's meaningless. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians earlier? He said this, the cross, meaning that Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, was crucified, mocked, ridiculed, died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that it scandalized the Jews and was moronic to the Gentiles. And so that was how the reaction would be. In modern Christianity, you say Christ crucified, and you have people willing to blaspheme Christ wearing crosses for jewelry. So we have to be specific about what we're preaching or they don't get it. Well, I love the cross. I paid a lot of money for mine. Well, you can't pay anything for salvation. Romans 5.17, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, that's Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. The first Adam brought death, judgment, and the fall. We live in a sinful world. We see it all around us. The last Adam brings hope to those who believe. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. How, what do you have to do to be in Adam? Nothing. Be born. That's all it takes. What does it take to be in Christ? Repent and believe the gospel. Turn to him. Trust him alone. Salvation isn't works. It's a gift from God. And God has designed the gospel of Christ crucified so that it will offend everyone unless it converts them. Oh, yeah. We don't get it because it doesn't seem like an offense, but it still is. If you define it properly, it, defend, it offends most Christians. God has acted in history. So how does someone have faith if it's a gift from God? By the way, grace, faith, salvation, the whole of it is the gift of God. That is the result of works. Work, 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 work. That's what Eastern religion teaches. That's what works-oriented Christianity teaches. That's what every world religion teaches. But not God. The gospel is a gift. And God has done the work in Christ. So there's no boasting. So how do you have faith? It says in Romans 10:17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Today, I'm telling you, Christ is not some leader of a world religion. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is God. Through him, the entire universe is created, according to John 1, 1 through 18. Only the God of the Bible is non-contingent. He doesn't depend on anything outside of himself. Before the fallen world, the entire universe 
which we know cannot be eternal or already have died of death. Before the universe existed, God created all things out of nothing. He existed, not dependent on anything outside of himself. The creator came, born of a virgin, the person of Christ, lived a sinless life, predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. And when he died, he shed his blood for remission of sins of those who believe. And he was raised on the third day before many witnesses, proved his own claims. Christ ascended to heaven and is going to come again to bring salvation and judgment. So faith is a gift from God. That's the terms. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Turn from works, the world, self, sin, religion, everything else, and trust Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. That is what it's about. There's no boasting. God was merciful to sinners. So some maybe don't realize it until later. But if you are willing to hear the truth of the gospel, it's by God's grace. Maybe today's the day some will trust in Christ and believe on him. Some have described conversion as like a lightning bolt from heaven. It was for me. Suddenly I knew it's all true. Now let's go to this reference about boasting. By the way, today, trust in Jesus. Believe in him. We instantly are joined to the body of Christ the moment we believe. Jeremiah 9, 23-24 had been cited earlier by Paul, 1 Corinthians one thirty one, where it says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is an amazing passage from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 9, 23-24 Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not a mighty man boast in his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, I am Yahweh, Notice all the caps. I am Yahweh who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord, Yahweh. So the danger of boasting is always right there. It's the poison pill that the accuser of the brethren wants to feed us. Because that's what will do all the damage. I'll show you that from Paul's own testimony. One of the things, as we go to 2 Corinthians twelve seven, one of the things is really ironic about First and Second Corinthians is that the Corinthian church existed because Paul brought the gospel there, and many believed that they became that church. But then when they looked at him as time went on, he wasn't very impressive. He had all kinds of problems. And in defending himself, which he does calling himself a fool for, fool for even doing it, he explains something in Second Corinthians 12, the thorn in the flesh. So let me read it, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Uh, the other day I looked this up in the Greek to make sure I was this translation is adequate. It definitely is. Notice 
the repeated clause. They're both purpose clauses. To keep me from exalting myself. To keep me from exalting myself. And they both begin with, in the Greek, hina, which is typically denotes a purpose. An order, and then negated, may, not, huper areomai. Hooper exalted. To keep me from hyper-exalting, that's what happened. Now let's look at there was given. This is in the passive in the Greek, and it's a divine passive by God. Do you think Satan himself would typically want Paul to not exalt himself? That's the temptation. What did Satan tell Eve, the serpent? Has God said, in other words, go, go beyond what God has said, you, should, you won't die. He's keeping something from you. You'll be like God. You'll gain something beneficial. Why let God be God and listen to him? Go ahead and eat. Defy God. Something good will happen. It's bad. So Satan is using the pride to try to de- destroy the person who would serve God. In this case, the divine passive was given. God allowed this thorn. We don't know exactly what it was. We don't need to. But it's a messenger's angelos, angel. Twice he said, in order to keep me from exalting myself. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus talked about going to the cross, and others said, don't do that. Get thee behind me, Satan. Don't give God the glory, but boast in yourself. So Paul understood the danger. The irony was the thing that was the biggest danger to destroy him was what the Corinthians used to say, you're unimpressive. What's wrong with you? I was so um, smitten by, I mentioned I was interviewed about some article I wrote 15 years ago, so I had to go back and look at it. You wouldn't believe the claims that are being made over the decades. There are people who are saying that Christ is held in the heavens because he can't come back for a disease-ridden, defeated church. So in other words, people that are trusting Christ, know they need him, believing in him, are to be despised because they're keeping Christ from coming back because they're so miserable. What a miserable lot. Until you get the revelation of whatever it is they're selling, Christ can't come back. And what an insult. What an insult to dear saints who need Christ and know that. It's by grace. And so if going to heaven, which Paul did, seeing things that's not lawful for people to utter, uh, here's this thorn in the flesh, and the boasting is what will knock us down every time. The opposite isn't the answer. In other words, joining a convent, paying somebody to whip us, and trying to have a race to misery, so the most miserable gets the boast. We'll turn anything into boasting. But if we just simply believe the promises of God, trust him, believe him, God will use us. And we have to trust that God can get us and will get us to the right place at the right time with the right message despite ourselves. And so Paul understood the danger. And remember when Jesus said, you don't have God's interests in mind, but man's? One last verse, and then we have the, today's celebrating the Lord's Supper. Galatians 4, excuse me, Galatians six fourteen, The truth of Christ crucified. But may it never be Paul said that I would boast except in the cross 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world, in its fallenness and rebellion and alienation from God, is an enemy of the gospel. Don't think that the world is lined up to help you be a better Christian. Don't think that bringing the world into the church or into the seminaries through philosophy or ideas that aren't from God is going to help anything. The only boast is we have a glorious, merciful Savior who came into our world, died for sinners, died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Crosses as religious symbols are rarely defined and rarely offend the world. Some of the most paganized versions of so-called Christianity have bigger crosses as far as architectural crosses. Massive ones. They're built into everything. But that is not the gospel. The truth is that if we know Christ and have him because of what he's done for us, we have riches beyond all measure. And it doesn't seem that way unless we believe the promises of God. Because this world isn't going to love us as it is now. It hates us. Because what we're saying offends them. I was offended, but God used that to convert me. So today, we have the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray to at the end of the sermon here, and then we'll proceed with the instructions about the Lord's Supper. Dear Lord, thank you for the gospel. I pray that even today some will be pierced to the heart and realize that, that you have called them to believe in you and trust in you. And we thank you that we can be part of your family. And we pray that you'd help us to think with sober-mindedness and care about one another. Thank you for what you've done. And thank you, Lord, that we can remember that through your supper. In Jesus' name, amen.